I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter and chapter 5. And as you turn there, let me say what a privilege it is to be here. Uh, The first time I came to America, I came to Dallas. That was 1972 for Explo 72, which many of you will have to Google to find out what that was. Uh, There was a generation before you, you know. And, uh, and I have uh, known of uh, this seminary uh, for uh, all the time that I have been uh, alert to spiritual things at all and have benefited from its ministry, have enjoyed uh, getting to know your president, Dr. Bailey. I've known Dr. Hannah over a good number of years now. Uh, Dr. Hendricks used to scare me when I preached with him. And, uh, and, and Dr. Allen uh, is just a, a, a very kind and welcoming host. It was uh, somewhat intriguing to realize that the uh, first two voices that I heard in walking in here this morning uh, have uh, Irish accents, and uh, uh, these boys need all the help they can get. And, uh, uh, so so I'm, glad, I'm glad you're looking after them. Um, you know, actually, in fairness, the, the, the Irish sent the bagpipes uh, to the Scots as a joke. And, uh, and, and we never got the joke. And, uh, uh, <laughs> we've been playing them ever since. Uh, in terms of music, I've had a great time. Uh, the praise was such, I could go home now and it was a good morning. And uh, so we bless God. What a, what a privilege it is. Well... Uh, I look forward to the time we have together getting to meet many of you. First, Peter chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 6 through to verse 11, and this will be our text for these four mornings. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. A brief prayer, an old Anglican prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For your son's sake. Amen. Well, you will see from the text that uh, it's inevitable that I'm going to have to treat these uh, matters more topically than um, within the broader context of 1 Peter, but I hope that in doing so, I won't do any despite to the text. And clearly, if your Bible is open, you realize that we're confronted immediately this morning with this uh, matter of humility. Some of you will have read and benefited from the a book by David Brooks, the New York columnist, called The Road to Character. Indeed, if you haven't read it, I commend it to you. 
And at the beginning of the book, he, uh, in a chapter called The Shift, um, tells of how he was coming home from somewhere, listening to the radio in his car, and he was listening to an old program called Command Performance. The particular program that he had tuned into was the broadcast that was heard the day after V-Day uh, on the 15th of August, 1945. And the episode, he tells us, uh, featured some of the era's biggest celebrities, Frank Sinatra, Marlena Dietrich, Cary Grant, Bette Davis, and many more. He said the thing that struck him as he was listening was that although the Allies had just completed this noblest of triumphs, uh, the tone of the program uh, had nothing about it that had to do with chest beating, nobody was erecting triumphal arches. And he said it, it just was very striking to him. And, and when he got home, uh, he found that he had arrived just at the time when uh, a football game was on. And uh, as a result of the football, uh, some guy had made a gain of one yard. And uh, having made the gain of one yard, he then went into the usual thing that they do. Uh, he, the defensive player, quotes, did what all professional athletes do these days in moments of personal accomplishment. He did a self-puffing victory dance as the camera lingered. Then he writes, it occurred to me that I had just watched more self-celebration after a two-yard gain than I had heard after the United States uh, won World War II. He says, there is something about these things, about the era, that people did not go around telling themselves how great they were. They didn't print up bumper stickers commemorating their own awesomeness. Their first instinct was to remind themselves they were not morally superior to anyone else. Their collective impulse was to warn themselves against pride and self-glorification. They intuitively resisted the natural human tendency toward self-love. Well, I've read enough of it, I think, but I'll give you one more piece. I'm not here selling David Brooks' books, incidentally. Um, but it did occur to me, he says, that there was perhaps a strain of humility that was more common then than now that there was a moral ecology stretching back centuries but less prominent now, encouraging people to be more, be more skeptical of their desires, more aware of their own weaknesses, more intent on combating the flaws in their own natures and turning weakness into strength. People in this tradition, I thought, are less likely to feel that every thought, feeling, and achievement should be immediately shared with the world at large. And right now, uh, launching in London, is a display uh, of art simply called Selfies. Selfies. And uh, leading the charge, I think, is probably Rembrandt, uh, who... Uh, Van, Van Gogh, I'm sure, is there as well. Um, less invasive form of uh, introducing yourself to the world. You could hide yourself in the Sistine Chapel away up in a corner, which uh, few people could see. Uh, because you can't crane your neck that well. But what, what it's transmuted uh, into is quite incredible, isn't it? Is it, it, did it? Did it really happen that the President of the United States had his first dance to my way? But it sets the tone. That says something. That's no, that's no comment on him as the President. That's a comment on the song. Somewhat ironic that it begins, and now the end is near. <laughs> now, 
Now, humility was not a virtue in the time that Peter is writing. If you, if you, if you read the emphasis of Paul on humility again and again in all of his letters, he's not, he's not appealing to a, a, a context, uh, for example, in Ephesus, where he can say that the basis of unity has to do with humility and with gentleness and with patience and with forbearance, as if somehow or another those were natural characteristics of the surrounding culture. No, they were radical transformations as a result of the work of the Spirit of God in the lives of the children of God, making them different from their culture. And in this letter that Peter writes to scattered Christians of his day, as he moves into these imperatives, as it were, as he closes out his letter, uh, humility is right here. Now, we have limited time, and which is good. It's good for you, and it's good for me as well. (laughs) Constraints are important. And so I want to just this morning uh, consider with you five aspects of humility as they emerge in these two verses. I hope you'll be able to find them there and that they're straightforward. Uh, First of all, and this is pretty obvious, isn't it? Humility is to be revealed in our relationships, in our relationships. In other words, humility is not something that we discover in a vacuum, uh, driving in our car by ourselves or sitting in our bedroom or whatever else it is. No, you see, that is relatively easy to be humble as long as there's nobody around you. But as soon as you have relationships, and, and in these verses, uh, uh, where in verse 5 he reminds uh, the, the folks that if they would clothe themselves with a humility, they should do so in the awareness that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Um, he repeatedly emphasizes the nature and the necessity of a submissive attitude. And that's part of your homework. You go back through the, the earlier part of the letter and, and ask yourself, well, where do I find his emphasis on a submissive attitude? You will find that it runs all the way through. In the preceding verses, as he opens chapter 5, he is giving direction to the elders, and that the elders, the leaders of the church, who may be prone to get a little uh, at themselves, are to make sure that they lead the people of God in a spirit of submission to God and in a spirit of humility towards one another. And then he goes on to say, likewise, verse 5, or in the same way, humility is to be the hallmark of the young men in relationship to those who are older. Now, while it is obvious that there is to be submission to the elders, it's more than likely that Paul is widening this application so that there would be respect for elderly as well as the elders. If you think about it, uh, it is uh, an indication of the mentality of a generation. I mean, I know I'm an old man, but I mean, when when, uh, I was at school in Scotland, when the, the, the school teacher entered the room, we all stood. We stood. Uh, when uh, someone older than us entered the room, we stood. If a lady was to come and join us on the platform, if we were seated and she was walking, we stood until she was in position, and then we sat. And we're a long way from that. And uh, one of the questions is whether within the Christian community, some of these elements, not as a result of uh, some kind of externalism, like hanging ornaments on a Christmas tree that mean very little and were taken down in time, but rather that the fruit that is produced as a result of the work of the Spirit of God within our lives, producing fruit just like this. So it's not the exclusive problem of young men, and indeed one another 
each of us should clothe ourselves with humility. In, um, in reading in general, and I like to read novels, I, like, I just like to read, it's about the only thing I can do. Uh, some people do woodwork and other people do things. They ask me, what do you do? I say, I read. And they say, yes, but what else? I said, no, you don't understand. Uh, this, is just, uh, this is just from a novel. I'm thinking about humility expressed in relationships. Here is a lady commenting on her husband and the breakdown of the relationship with one another in their marriage. It's, 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 uh, it's a fiction. But this doesn't sound like a fiction if you're involved in pastoral ministry. I grew to realize, she said, that his emotions were without substance. His obsession was with himself, not me. He'd be telling me about some big contract he'd signed, some export deal to the United States, and I'd realize that he was watching his own reflection in the window, as he told me, playing to his own imagined gallery, posing for photographs that weren't being taken. Humility is expressed in relationships. Secondly, Humility is primarily an attitude of mind. Primarily an attitude of mind. Um, it's revealed both in attitude and in action. But Peter does not urge his readers to feel humble or even to pray about being humble, but to adopt an attitude of humility, to adopt an attitude of lowliness. You see, when we think in terms of sanctification, and we think of how Paul moves, Paul now, where I know we're in Peter, but as, as we think of how Paul lays down the doctrinal indicatives and then applies the moral imperatives, if you get those two things messed up, if you don't hold them together, if we don't realize that the imperative emerges from the indicative, then we will end up simply by a formalism that bears no testimony to the radical power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the child. And, and so when we, when we look at this, he's not, he's not urging the people to become something they're not. He's urging them to become what they are. Paul says, you know, uh, the Living Bible, don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or of your own importance. Try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities. Isn't it C.S. Lewis who says, uh, humility is not thinking um, less about ourselves. No, it's, it's not thinking, I don't remember what it is now. It's not, it's, which uh, is very humbling. It's, uh, yeah, it is, I was right, I was right, it's okay. See, because I'm seeing it now. It's not, it's not thinking less about ourselves, it's thinking about ourselves less. It's not a form of self-denigration. Is it a brother here? If I meet him somewhere and he says he's not very good at playing the piano, that's not humility, that's a flat-out lie. Okay? So, that, that's, there, there's nothing unreal about it. It is an attitude of mind, a vitally important attitude of mind. The verb which he employs is a descriptive verb. It's as descriptive as it is unusual. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. The word which was used of a slave who tied on an apron to go about menial tasks, he employs here to make his point, and he does so very well. We should wear humility towards one another. Because when the garment of humility is not present, friendships are marred, families are broken, 
and fellowships are destroyed. An attitude of humility thinks about serving, not about being served. It thinks about giving rather than taking, about responding rather than commanding, about fitting into the arrangement of others, not demanding that they fit into ours. We got time for a quote from uh, David Wells. It is mistaken to suppose that humility excludes conviction. Chesterton wrote about the dislocation of humility. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has settled upon the organs of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. Thirdly, thirdly, humility and the discovery of God's grace go hand in hand. You can see that in the text. It's really the corollary of what we have running through the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, towards the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. The Bible makes it perfectly clear that God sets himself against the haughty or the arrogant. For example, remember the story of Uzziah, who was a particularly gifted young individual in just about every capacity that he could possibly have in ruling the kingdom. He had it all. But you remember how his life ends. He ends his life as a leper, no longer enthroned, but as it were, at the gatehouse at the bottom of the property. And people must have come by and said, but wasn't Uzziah a great and mighty king? Why is it that he ends his circumstances in such a spot? And the chronicler would have been able to answer. Uzziah was gloriously helped until he became strong. But when he became strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. You see, this pride thing hounds you all through your life. All through your life. It's at the very root of things. It's in the Garden of Eden. It's there. And if you've got some idea that once you get on or get out or get up or get through or whatever you want to say, you'll be done with it, I've got news for you. It gets worse. You might actually start to believe the things that people say about you. That's why, incidentally, every pastor needs a wife. <laughs> if, if, for, if for no other reason than to keep him humble. In all honesty. Or, or, or your children. Your children. My son, who's now 38 and single, you know, he is, he, he's on me like, like mustard on a hot dog all the time. I remember when, we, when he was just small, we were driving in the car, and I was driving as I routinely drive, and, and, and verbalizing certain things as I went along about the, about the nature of some of the other drivers. And uh, I wasn't really paying much attention to it. I must have said, oh, look at this clown, you know? I mean, if you're going to make a left-hand turn, at least pull into the thing so I can come past and da-da-da-da-da. And then there was a silence, and a little voice from the back said, and that's another kind word from your pastor. 
Cedarville University years ago gave me an honorary doctorate. I'm having dinner with my son. He says, what's this doctorate thing? I said, well, I said, it's not exactly Harvard, Cameron. He said, that's right, Dad. I like it when you say things like that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> fourthly, humility lives under God's mighty hand. We're not talking here about a winsome graciousness. We're not talking about a deferential approach. We're not talking here about, at least we're not, Peter's not. He's not talking about um, uh, Uriah Heep in David Copperfield. You know who, if you've read Copperfield, you know that he, he always told David that I am an, ever, I'm an humble man, Master Copperfield. I am ever so humble. And he dropped his H's to prove just how humble he was. <laughs> because if he hadn't been humble, he would have said, humble. No, I'm an humble man. He wasn't. He was a creep. <laughs> he wasn't humble. It was a posture. So attitude of heart gives rise to the expression of the lip is expressed in the most unconscious ways. I would think that people who are actually humble probably think they've really got a problem with pride. So it's just, it's just converse. And it is under God's mighty hand that humility lives. That's, that's the fourth thing to notice. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Uh, that, that phrase, the mighty hand of God, is a, is a routine phrase, isn't it? It takes us all the way back into the Old Testament. It takes us uh, to the time of Moses, to the Exodus, and uh, the, the, the uh, people of God were led out by a mighty hand. When uh, the news reaches Nehemiah in Susa concerning the predicament of the people in Jerusalem with the gates and the walls broken down, and uh, he goes to the king and receives uh, permission to leave and to help them. And when he arrives in the scene, uh, what is his calling card? He doesn't say, your troubles are over, folks. Ezra had a stab at it. He wasn't that good. But I'm Nehemiah. <laughs> I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to fix it now. You see? No. So first of all, he didn't say anything. He did the reconnaissance. He did it at night. In other words, he didn't, he didn't show up with a trumpet fanfare. He didn't tell anyone what, quotes, God had put in my heart to do. And then he told them that the mighty hand of God rested upon him. Now, he said, once we understand this, we can proceed. Until we understand this, then we shouldn't proceed. That's leadership under God. And so the issue is that the, that the humble believer is aware of the fact that God is sovereign in all these things that his providential dealings are working at all according to his plan from all of eternity, that this humble believer knows that he didn't make himself, that she didn't save herself, that her humility uh, emerges from their total dependence upon the grace of God. So that the, the humility is, is not simply an absence of pride or an awareness of limitations, but it is the realistic recognition that the grace of God is the key to understanding and accepting who I am, what I am, 
where I've been put, what my limitations are, why I'm not the person next to me, and why they're not me. It's 1 Corinthians 4. Who, who, what do you have you did not receive? Nothing. So if you, didn't, if you received it, why would you glory as if you didn't receive it? Of all the forms of pride that is the ugliest, surely spiritual pride is. Because it's all gift. It's all gift. It's clearly gift. It is given. It is taken away. And that is to be exercised under God's mighty hand. Just come into terms with who we are and, and, and who we're not. You know, I come in here with all these professorial eggheads. I read. I'm a student. But I'm not a scholar. But I love scholars. Because I can read. And then when I speak, I can sound quite good. <laughs> on the strength of their scholarship. But I'm not going to try and pretend to you that I am them. And some of them are not that good at speaking. <laughs> Some of them are very good at speaking. But it's a team. In the 60s, when they were writing songs that should never have been written, <laughs> there, was a, there was a song. Do you remember, did you sing this? I'm sure it was exported from America. We would never be so crazy as to write something like this. I said, if I were a butterfly, I thank you, Lord, for giving me wings. Remember that? And if I were a robin in the tree, I thank you, Lord, that I could sing. And if I were a fuzzy wuzzy bear, I thank you, Lord, for my fuzzy wuzzy hair. But I just thank you, Father, for making me me. Because you gave me a heart, you gave me a smile, you gave me Jesus, you made me your child, and I just thank you, Father, for making me me. Right? See, when we, when we come, the scriptures are always consistently bringing us to the end of ourselves in order that we might find again and again our sufficiency in Christ. You think about Paul. Surely, Paul, somebody that smart with those kind of credentials and all of that power behind him, there's no surprise to me that he constantly references the need for humility. In fact, in the second letter to the Corinthians, remember he says, to keep me from getting a big head. <coughs> to keep me from getting a big head. There was given me a thorn in the flesh. To keep me from becoming conceited, he says. God knows what he's doing. He did this in order that he might make me even more useful, in order that he might bring me, bring me to the point where I suddenly realize, well, then it's better this way. Because since your objective is my dependence, then if dependence is the objective, then weakness is an advantage. Therefore, all, I will glory all the more in my weakness that Christ may power may rest upon me, because when I am weak, then I am strong. Then I am strong. It's the absolute reverse of contemporary millennial preoccupation. Listen and listen carefully to the Bible. You're sensible people. You can figure it out. Fifthly and finally, <laughs> humility 
can anticipate exaltation. Humility can anticipate exaltation. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, if he so chooses, if he so chooses. Now, this is not here uh, to provide motivation for living humbly. This is not motivation. Now, go ahead and be humble. And if you're really good and humble, he'll make you really exalted. Oh, well, then I'm going to be really humble in order that I might be. Now, nah, you, you, you can forget that plan right now. No, it's not motivation. It's explanation. Insofar as it will only be those who have humbled themselves that God can lift up in due time. Because those are the only ones he chooses to lift up. I live in a high and a holy place, he says, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. That's Isaiah 57, Isaiah 66. He comes back to it again, doesn't he? This is the one to whom I will look, says the Lord. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now think about it as we finish. What it cost Peter to write in this way. You see, when you listen to your pastor preach over time, you'll find out what he's really dealing with. Because he preaches about his own sins, if he's honest. I mean, I don't mean he suggests, look, uh, here we go. But if you listen and you know him, you can see why there would be that there. Peter, he says, I want you young fellows to clothe yourselves with humility. I want there to be this present there. Oh, yeah, Peter? Like you? Like the sons of thunder? Like who's getting the big seats in the kingdom? Like when you said, Lord, you've got a rough group here. I acknowledge that. I mean, these other fellows are pretty hopeless. But me, oh, I'm your ace in the hole. If these, if these fellows all fall away, and I pro- they probably will. I mean, that's what we've seen so far. But not me. Not me. And the girl says, well, you sound like a Galilean. Weren't you with him? Don't be ridiculous. Yeah, I think you were. And with oaths and curses. And Christ looking at him, he went out and wept bitterly. And then he figured, well, I'll just become a fisherman. And then the breakfast meeting. And then the restoration. You see, at the proper time, at the proper time. Pride will actually keep us from salvation, won't it? I'm not going to believe that. Pride will keep us from usefulness. Pride will actually destroy our effectiveness. Because you see, it doesn't really matter what anybody says in the immediate about what's going on. Because only, only God knows what's going on. Therefore, we can leave it with him. We don't have to jockey to the front of the bus. We don't have to put our hand up all the time. We don't have to be like, me, me, I think I should. Why haven't I? Why haven't I? God, no, God will do what he's doing. Okay, we're supposed to stop now. So we're stopping.
a brief prayer. Father, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you will shine not only on our path, but into our hearts, show us ourselves, uh, show us our ongoing need of Jesus as our Savior, Lord, and King. We commit the balance of the day into your custody. In Christ's name, amen.